If you have your Bible, please turn with me to Luke chapter 3. We continue our verse-by-verse exposition of Luke. Last week, Pastor Freddie wrapped up chapter 2 and with it, a main section of Luke's book. Luke chapter 1 and 2 are primary there to lay out the infancy narratives of John the Baptist and Jesus. John's infancy narrative and Jesus' infancy narrative. There he is merely uh, really laying out the foundation of the glorious reality that God has spoken. But not only has he spoken, God has come in the flesh to usher in the kingdom of God. Heaven and earth have now collided in the person of Jesus. And now he transitions to a new section in chapter 3 through about verse 13 of chapter 4, which lays out the preparation of Jesus' ministry. But just like he did with the infancy narrative, he will do in this preparation narrative. John, the ministry of John, will precede the ministry of Jesus. Why? Because John's purpose is to be the forerunner, the one who goes ahead and announces the coming Messiah, who is Jesus. But it's also important that this specific order follows because what this order does for us, not only does it merely lay out redemptive history and the fact that John is bringing a close to the old as the new is coming with Christ, but it's a simple declaration that... Repentance precedes salvation. John preaches a message of repentance in what? In preparation for the salvation of Jesus. Without repentance, there is no salvation. And that's what this order also does. We will see that very clear in our message today. The kingdom of heaven is indeed at hand. And the necessary prerequisite to enter it for all is repentance and faith. With that little bit of an introduction, let's look now to Luke chapter 3. We're going to be looking at the first part of John's ministry and message today through verse 14. So chapter 1, or chapter 3, verse 1 through 14. In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar... Pontius Pilate being governor of Judea and Herod being tetrarch of Galilee and his brother Philip tetrarch of the region of Itraea and Trachonitis and Lysanias tetrarch of Abilene. During the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah in the wilderness. And he went into all the region around the Jordan, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. As it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Every valley shall be filled and every mountain and hill shall be made low and the crooked shall become straight and the rough places shall become level ways and all flesh shall see the salvation of God. He said, therefore, to the crowds that came out to be baptized by him. You brood of vipers. Who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? 
bear fruits in keeping with repentance, and do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now, the axe is laid to the root of the trees. And every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. And the crowds asked him, what then shall we do? And he answered them, whoever has two tunics is to share with him who has none. And whoever has food is to do likewise. Tax collectors also came to be baptized and said to him, teacher, what shall we do? And he said to them, collect no more than you are authorized to do. Soldiers also asked him, and and we, what shall we do? And he said to them, do not extort money from anyone by threats or by false accusations and be content with your wages. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Luke, being the great historian that he is, once again wants to root this clear story of redemption in the history of the world. Just like he did in that opening section of Luke 1, he now does again with this new section of Luke 3. Here we are years later down the road, and we are introduced to John again, ministering in the wilderness, where we saw him lead at the close of Luke 1. Now, not only do these individuals make it clear that this really happened in real history, among real people, in a real place. This is history, people. It's not just some story of a, a galaxy far, far away. This is real time. Luke wants to make it clear to Theophilus, right? You can be certain of these truths because they really happen with leaders you're well, you well know. But what these historical figures also do is they don't just demonstrate that this story, that this picture, that this ministry of John happens in real-time history. It also shows that this was a time of political and spiritual corruption. This was a dark time for Israel. Now fully under the reign and rule of the Roman Empire... Even though they had been captured for about a hundred years at this point, it wasn't until about AD 6 before they really began to feel the pressure and weight of Rome. And this took place with the rise of a new emperor named Tiberius. Now, Tiberius was actually far more cruel than the Caesar before him, Augustus. He was very cruel, but not only was he very cruel, he was very arrogant. And already within the eastern part of the world, there had, been a, there had arisen a what we call an emperor cult. A cult of emperor worship that began to worship Tiberius as a god. This was also the time of Pontius Pilate. Who, from our perspective within the scriptures, may seem like not that bad of a guy. You know, he tried to reason with the Jews. But, but that's not actually the case. Pontius Pilate was a weak man. A very weak ruler and a very cruel ruler who often put down uh, any kind of uprisings with extreme violence in order to make a clear picture and send a clear message. He was a weak man who only cared about his own namesake. 
If it was going to cause him problems, I assure you, he would rather wash his hands of it. We'll see that very clear later on. We see these vassal kings that have been given rulership over Judea and Israel. These Herods and these, these brothers of Herod the Great, or sons of Herod the Great, who are all brothers. We see Herod the uh, Herod, Herod of Tetrarch, Philip Tetrarch uh, of Tacronitus, Lysanias. All of these are brothers. And all of them are wicked aristocrats. They only care about a pleasing Rome. They're Egemean. That means they're not even full-blooded Jewish. So the Jews hate them. They don't even look to them as kings. They're just a bunch of rich aristocrats, playboys, who like to go out, party, have a good time, and keep Rome off their back. And do whatever Rome wants to be satisfied. So this is a time of deep political corruption. But not only a time of political corruption, it's a time of spiritual corruption. We read of two high priests there, Annas and Caiaphas. Now, that makes no sense. Because there can only be one high priest at a time. So, so what's, what's Luke talking about here? Well, you see, Annas was the high priest when Jesus was born, all the way up till about 14 A.D., give or take, before he was deposed. But Annas had a lot of power. And Annas was like the godfather to the spiritual mob of Israel. He was the one behind the scenes and the curtains making everything happen. He was the puppet master. And Caiaphas was his son-in-law who took over the, the, the high priest and would remain the high priest until 37 AD. So the reason why Luke mentions both of them is that even though Caiaphas is the legitimate high priest of Israel right now, Ultimately, he's nothing more than a puppet to Annas. Annas is the one calling the shots. And both of these men are only serving to promote their status. And they have promoted a a terrible bout of spiritual corruption that has plagued Israel. And it will be this group, this kind of spiritual corruption that we are going to see throughout Luke's gospel, Jesus confronting time and time and time again. In the midst of this spiritual and political darkness, God calls His final Old Testament prophet into ministry. John the Baptist. John the Baptist is the closing of the Old Testament. The final Old Testament prophet who will serve to bridge the covenants by introducing us to the one who is the fulfillment of the old and the substance of the new, Jesus Christ. Now John is a strange man. We're not going to go fully into Matthew's description, but we see from Matthew's description, John was out in the wilderness. He wore cloaks of camel hair. He ate locusts and honey. I mean, the guy was just burly and and just kind of all over the place. It's kind of like this picture of him. Because it's like most pictures that you see of the icons that a lot of the Orthodox Church and others have done, they're very pristine, they're very neat. Anyone you find of John, he's a ragged character. His hair's all over the place. He's, He's a strange man. He's a strange man who has a strong message. Strange man with a strong message. We read... 
That during the, the, the time of all of this spiritual and moral darkness, the Word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. And with all this, these figures, these historical characters, we can positively identify the beginning of John's ministry here around between 27 and 28 A.D. is when John's ministry is inaugurated. God was breaking the silence to Israel. The last Old Testament prophet was now fulfilling the, the, the prophecies of Malachi, coming to prepare the way of the Lord. But what makes this so important was that John, though likely being told his whole life what he was born to do, I'm sure from the time he was, could, could barely walk, Zechariah was instructing him on what his role would be as the Messiah's forerunner. Notice, John does not begin ministering until he receives the call. He doesn't say a word to Israel until the word of God came to him. My friends, I don't care who you are, what skills you may possess. You have no place in a ministry that you're not called to. Because your ministry will be ineffective. It will be fruitless and often it will be disobedient if you are not acting in accordance with the call of God. In a time of moral degeneracy and political chaos, God called John the Baptist to do what? To bring the Word. To bring the Word. And what was true for that final Old Testament preacher is true for every New Covenant preacher. When the world is in the midst of darkness and political and moral degeneracy is everywhere, what the world needs more than anything else is the Word of God. It needs the Word of God. It needs men who are called by God who give the Word of God what it needs. God's Word provides the only sufficient message and it points us to the only sufficient person who can bring salvation to any single soul. This is the great travesty of so many of today's churches. Because they are led by preachers who are either unconverted or do not have the Spirit or by those who are not called of God, or by those who give the flock of Christ everything but His Word. And rather than confronting the moral degeneracy and chaos of the age directly with the invincible precepts of God's Word, they merely adopt the very methods of degeneracy and chaos and call it outreach. But not so with the forerunner of the Messiah. Like all the prophets of the Old Testament, John's authority and power came not from himself, but from God. Luke chapter 1 verse 15 said that he was filled with the Spirit from his mother's womb. That means that even we now, 2,000 years later, had better listen to his message. Because it's God's message. Coming from a man of God, preached with the power of God, in the Spirit of God, for the people of God. And what was the message that a dark 
and morally degenerate world needed? The answer was a message of repentance. The message that we preach to the darkness of the world is the message of repentance. And that's what this message is all going to be about today. Much could have been focused on with John. But I believe the thrust of what Luke wants us to focus on in these early portions of his ministry is the call to repentance. And the question you may be asking now is, well, I've heard that word a lot. I hear it all the time. But what is repentance? What is repentance? Right? We've, we've heard it said things like it's, it's turning away from sin and turning to God. Correct. It's in military terms an about face, a 180 degree turn, facing one direction, now going the other. All of those are true in great explanation uh, to help someone uh, learn kind of that immediate understanding of what repentance is. But it's important to note that repentance and faith go together. A faith that isn't repentant isn't saving faith. And saving faith must be repentant. There isn't like, well, I believe in Jesus. Well, there's nothing different about your life. You're not saved. And there isn't, well, I just said I'm sorry, but I don't, I just, I'm going to go find another system to clean myself up with. I'm going to turn to something else to make myself feel better. Repentance and faith are the same thing. And so when we talk about repentance for the forgiveness of sins, we mean a repentant faith. So, yes, those are all true. Turning away from sin, turning to God. An about face, a 180 degree. But I want to try to give you the clearest, most concise, yet substantive definition of repentance that I think we can have based upon the way John preaches it today. So, here's the main point. What is repentance? Repentance is a turning away from my sin and away from any confidence that I place in my flesh, that is who I am or what I've done, and turning to the absolutely free mercy of God in Christ as the sole basis of my salvation. That's repentance. It's turning away not only from my sin, but any confidence that I might have to make myself better than I am, to get myself out of the hole, to think I'm either better than I am or that I do enough to make God happy. It's for turning away from all of that and turning solely to the free mercy of God in Christ for salvation. It's just turning to Him. Away from all that I've done, all that I am, all that I try to be, and turning completely and solely to relying on Him. That's repentance. And so I want us to look now this morning about this picture of true repentance from John's ministry and his message. So the first thing I want us to notice here in verse 3 through 6 is John's ministry of repentance. Here we get a description of his ministry without a single word of his being told. We read, And he went into all the region around the Jordan proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. As it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make his path straight. Every valley shall be filled and every mountain and hill shall be made low. 
and the crooked shall become straight and the rough places shall become level ways and all the flesh shall see the salvation of God. So the first interesting tidbit we see about John's strange ministry in the wilderness is that the essence or the picture of his ministry is this baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Notice it doesn't say baptism for the forgiveness and repentance of sin. It's a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. In other words, the baptism is simply a picture of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Baptism doesn't do anything other than reflect what's already happened in the heart of the person being baptized. It's like saying, I'm giving you a prescription of Tylenol for the pain of a headache. The prescription doesn't do anything to take away, right? It's the Tylenol itself that took away the pain of the headache. The prescription is merely the reflection of what is needed to be forgiven. That is what it is with baptism. Baptism is merely the reflection of what is needed in the heart for forgiveness. It is a picture of repentance. Everything about his baptism was nothing more than a reflection for the need of repentance because this is the essence of John's purpose to call Israel and all who will hear him to repentance. Back in chapter 1, the angel Gabriel told Zechariah, John's father, precisely what John's ministry would be. We see this in John chapter 1, or excuse me, Luke chapter 1, verse 16 and 17. He says, And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God, and he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the Father to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. Notice the repetition of the word turn there. He will turn many of the Israelites to the Lord their God. He will turn the hearts of the fathers and turn the disobedient. In other words, his ministry will be repentance. Turning. It will be a whole ministry of turning. Turning people away from reliance on self and away from sin and onto Christ. That's how he prepares the way. He prepares the way by making it clear to all he preaches to, the only hope you have is repentance and faith in the Messiah to come. That's how he prepares the way. He prepares hearts to receive the only thing that can give them assurance of salvation. It is the ministry of repentance. Those words of Gabriel given to Zechariah were nothing more than a reiteration of the prophecy of Malachi 4. Of when Elijah would come to do what? To turn Israel to the Lord. To turn the hearts of the fathers and the disobedient to the Lord. And that's precisely who John is. John is the Elijah to come. Jesus makes that clear in Matthew chapter 11. But at this time, everything about John's ministry is showing he's the Elijah to come. You don't need to be looking for another day when Elijah's going to come. He came. We see it in the very stuff that he wears. Those, that camel hair. You know where he got that wardrobe style from? Elijah the Tishbite, 2 Kings chapter 1, verse 8. He knows who he's come to be and come to live in the spirit of. 
and preparing the people of the Lord. He has come to turn others to God. He has come to preach the message and to provide the ministry of repentance. A turning of the direction of our life and the affections of our heart so that we can become oriented to God and and love the things that He loves. Now John promises the people the most important thing you can have this morning. Forgiveness of sins. I want you to know the most important thing that you can walk away from Hillside Baptist Church this morning with is the knowledge that you are forgiven of sin. Nothing else you can take away from this morning will matter if you don't have 100% absolute assurance, my sins have been forgiven. Can you say that with 100% assurance this morning? If you can, I pray by the end of this message, you will be able to. And then everything else shall follow. John promises the forgiveness of sins in response to their repentance. They're turning to God. But then he calls them to demonstrate the seriousness of their repentance by by entering into the waters of baptism. So baptism for John is the serious demonstration of the repentance of their heart. And if you've repented, John says, what problem do you have entering the water? If your sins have been forgiven, if you've turned to God, why will you not follow in what He calls you to? Now, Old Testament baptisms were a little bit different than ours. Old Testament baptisms were ceremonial washings. They were cleansing rituals. And the interesting thing about these is where did these ceremonial washings or baptisms come from? Well, they came from two stories in Israel's history. Or you could say world history. The first was Noah and the ark. Where God protects Noah from the waters which purged the world of corruption. And then, when Israel crossed the Red Sea, they crossed through the water. And what did the water in the Red Sea do? It crushed the enemy that held them in slavery. So the two examples of water salvation in this sense, uh, of how God saved His people through, uh, through from their enemies, from their corruption, was through the use of water to give a picture of it. Water cleansed the earth of its, of its wickedness in Noah, and water destroyed the enemy that had held Israel captive. Pharaoh and his armies. And so what these Old Testament baptisms did was as you entered into them and came out, it was a picture of true repentance because there's nothing to go back to. The corruption has been washed away. It's gone. Just like the ark. It's covered. It's destroyed. It's gone. And... That which has held you bondage because of your repentance has been destroyed as well. So the corruption of sin and the slavery of sin have been destroyed by your repentance. And the picture of going into the water, right? Drowning. Literally, that's what it is. It's a drowning ceremony. But not staying under the water is a picture that you've been rescued through the water. You've been rescued. You haven't been left to die. You've been rescued because of a repentant heart. You've been cleansed 
not drowned. That was the, what, that's what baptism symbolized. But, baptisms in the Old Testament were not something you just gave to Jews. It's not something you just did to be like, hey, we should just go get baptized this, day, this week. It's not how it worked. Or we, just, we need to get ceremonial cleansed. No. Baptism, these ceremonial baptisms in the Old Testament were only done for two purposes. When a Gentile became a Jewish proselyte, he or she, right? If it was he, he would need to be circumcised, then baptized. If it was a she, she would need to be baptized. But that was the picture of going, going from being a Gentile to now I'm taking on Jewishness. Or if you were a Jew who had spent a lengthy amount of time in a Gentile land, then you would come to be cleansed away from all that pollution. That was the picture. So it wasn't just anybody being baptized. And that's what makes John's baptism so strange. Because John's telling everyone, be repentant and you come get baptized. Every one of you, repent and be baptized. And this would have been very offensive. This would have been very offensive to a Jew. I've been to no Gentile countries. And I am no Gentile. How dare you call a son of Abraham to be baptized? You see, in the Old Testament, right? Just like fasting. In, old, in the Old Covenant, baptism and fasting were primarily means of repentance for mourning over sin or wickedness or depravity. There was nothing celebratory about baptism in the Old Testament. That's the difference between Old Covenant and New Covenant baptism. Old Covenant baptism and John's baptism was merely a reflection of the repentance of sin and the turning to God. Now, is that a part of Christian baptism? Yes. But here's the thing about it, right? When John was baptizing, he was baptizing in order to prepare them as a picture that they have been saved from death because of their repentance. When we are baptized... We are not merely baptized and raised as the fact that we were saved from the judgment to come. But that we have been raised with Jesus in the resurrection. We are not just baptized for Christ. We're baptized into Him. That's what our repentance and faith does. It does not prepare us for the Messiah to come. Repentance and faith places us in the Messiah who came. And so our our baptism is not one of mourning and sadness. Our repentance, our baptism is a picture of celebration. So I just want to say before moving on, anything else this morning? If you're in Christ by faith, if you have repented and believed upon Him, and you have yet to be baptized, what's keeping you from it? The Lord calls you to be baptized. Because it is celebratory. It is wonderful news that you have been baptized, buried with Christ, raised with Him to life. You are now a part of His body, one people, to celebrate of what He has done for you. So if you have yet to be baptized, don't be disobedient any longer. Walk in faith and declare to the world, I am His and He is mine. 
and be buried in the waters of baptism. Not for salvation. You've already been saved. But because of salvation, go be baptized. Now this was, like I said, this was a remarkable demand of John to his Jewish kinsmen. This made John's baptism extremely offensive. John was not afraid to offend anybody. If you think I'm wrong, just wait till we see his message. John's baptism and saying, listen, you need to not only repent, but your repentance needs to be shown in real action through baptism and fruit. That would have been offensive to anyone who was holding on to the fact that I'm a son of Abraham. I don't need to repent. What do I need to repent from? I'm, I'm attached to Abraham. John's baptism implied that unless the Jews were willing to repent, they were not really Jews. If you don't really repent, you're not really Israel. And they could not count on the promised blessings that God had made to Abraham. Or to put it in another way, in calling Jews to accept a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins, John was telling them, you cannot rely on your Jewishness for salvation. You have to be changed in your heart toward God. This has to be circumcised. You see, this is something that is so often misunderstood. In the Old Testament, the type or shadow of baptism was not circumcision. It was these Old Testament washings. The type of New Covenant baptism was Old Covenant baptism. And what circumcision of the flesh pointed to typologically or pointing to was the need to be circumcised of the heart. The circumcision of the flesh being cut off there was a picture that your heart's been circumcised in the new. So the only way to receive the covenant promises and blessings of the new covenant is not to share in the flesh of your faithful parents. But to have this circumcised yourself. Or you've got no place in the new covenant. And you've got no need to be baptized because you're not in the covenant family. The baptism is merely to reflect that this has been changed. That all of you has been changed. You need to be spiritually cleansed just as much as those pagan Gentiles, John's saying. In order to be brought to an everlasting covenant with God, which the Messiah, who is now coming, will bring. But for, John, for, but, but for John's baptism, Luke doesn't really care too much about the practice itself. Matthew spends a little more, more time talking about the baptism. But Luke just wants to show you what this baptism was trying to say to the world. Remember, don't divorce Luke from his reason for writing, his purpose for writing. Who's Luke writing to? Theophilus. Who's Theophilus? A Roman official. How easy would Theophilus hear about these stories of this Jewish Messiah and go, that's just Jewish stuff. Those baptisms, those practices, John the Baptist, that weirdo, that was just those Jewish people thing. What does that have anything to do with us Romans? And Luke writes John's baptism in such a way to make it clear. It means everything for you Romans. It means everything for all you Gentiles. You see, Luke makes it clear in John's baptism that repentance was not just for the Jews to receive their Messiah. 
but it was also open for Gentiles to repent and be forgiven. The central importance of John's baptism for Luke is that repentance demonstrates that if Jewishness does not save, neither does non-Jewishness not condemn. If Jewishness is not the basis for your salvation, then non-Jewishness is no hindrance to it. What is necessary is repentance for all. And to make that clear, look at what Luke does here in revealing how John fulfills the prophecy of Isaiah 40. All four of the Gospel writers connect John with Isaiah 40 verse 3. Only Luke includes verses 4 and 5 of Isaiah 40. And there's a reason why. Look at what Isaiah 40 verse 4 and 5 says. Every valley shall be filled, every mountain and hill shall be made low, and the crooked shall become straight, and the rough places shall become level ways, and all flesh shall see the salvation of God. In other words, John's ministry was not just to prepare a way for the Jews. It was to prepare the way for all of the Messiah who comes to save all peoples. Not just one. Luke quoted these very, for very clear purposes. To show that the salvation that Jesus will bring is for all flesh, not just ethnic Israel. The mountains are lowered. The crooked ways are straightened. The rough ways are smooth. What does that mean? It means that anything that would hinder someone from coming to Christ has been made, it's been removed. It's gone. Repentance removes any hindrance from getting you to Jesus. Whatever stumbling blocks you came to in in this place this morning, whatever sin, whatever mountains of sin, whatever crooked paths you've fallen into, repentant faith in Jesus Christ makes all things straight directly to Him. And to really get across this confirmation that Luke is wanting to show that this is for all Gentiles is the word salvation that he uses. There are three places that Luke uses this word for salvation, soterion, in the form that he uses it. Only three places. It's the only three places we have in the New Testament within Luke and Acts. And there are three specific times he uses it. And I want you to notice, every time he uses it, it is in the context that the salvation Jesus has brought is for the Gentiles as well. The first place we saw it back in Luke chapter 2 with Simeon. Luke chapter 2, verse 30 and 31. Simeon says to the baby Jesus, For my eyes have seen your salvation. So Tyrion, that you have prepared in the presence of what? All peoples. And then Luke closes his letter, his final work in Acts with this. Acts 28, 28. Paul says to the Jews who rejected the gospel, Therefore, let it be known to you that this salvation, so Tyrion, to Theol, salvation of God, has been sent to the Gentiles. They will listen. All three times, 
Luke uses that, that form of salvation. Soterion to Theo, salvation of God. He does it in reference to all peoples, not just ethnic Israel. This is the thrust of what Luke is all about, guys. Luke preaches a gospel that is made available to all peoples, not just one. Not just the healthy people, not just good people, not just smart people, not just Jewish people. All peoples can come and receive Christ through repentance and faith in Him. That's Luke's whole thrust of his writings. And that's the message he wants Theophilus to know that he may be certain of his salvation. I think the primary theology behind John's ministry of repentance for Luke is that it serves to demonstrate that as it pertains to the coming Messiah, Jewishness is no guarantee of salvation and new covenant inclusion, and non-Jewishness is no hindrance to to new covenant salvation and inclusion. And this is precisely how John serves to prepare the way for Jesus. He is already setting the stage for the universal nature of Jesus' salvation and how true repentance and faith are the necessary prerequisites for all people to enter into the kingdom of God. It doesn't matter who you are. What matters is, have you repented and believed? And If you have, you receive forgiveness of sins in Christ Jesus. If one turns away from who they are and what they've done and turns to and relies solely upon the Lord, they will be saved. And to make this clear, now we get the words of John the Baptist. So we've just seen the ministry of John the Baptist. Now we see John's message of repentance in verses 7 through 14. We read, He said therefore to the crowds that came out to be baptized by him, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruits in keeping with repentance. And do not begin to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. So let's just stop there for a second before we move on to the fruits of repentance he shows in verses 10 through 14. Now, John could never be accused of being a a seeker-sensitive preacher. He can never be accused of, of preaching to itching ears. But I love this. John is a strange man ministering in a strange place. This is a hot, arid region. Why is he not in the Jerusalem? Why is he not at the temple? This is no man's land. He's a strange man in a strange place preaching an offensive but strong message. What I love about John the Baptist is he makes clear Ministry success is not tied to style or location. So stop making it about that. Stop saying if we just make it flashy enough, people will come. They will, but what you win them with is what you win them to. You want to use the world to win them, that's right where you'll win them. You'll see no difference. John is out in the middle of nowhere. Strange man with a strange diet. Preaching a strong and what would have been seen as an offensive message. But this offensive message is just the gospel uncensored. That's all it is. And maybe if you hear this and you're kind of a bit put off by it, 
it's probably because you've actually never heard the gospel really preached. With his first sentence, John does four things. You brood of vipers. Who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? He bluntly tells the crowd from the outset. Notice, Matthew says that he says this to the Sadducees and Pharisees. Luke says, yeah, but he said it to everybody. Everyone's a brood of vipers, John says. Right from the get-go, he's telling the crowd of their rotten condition. You're a brood of vipers. Now, brood of vipers just simply means a son or an offspring of vipers. Now, notice something. If any Jew would have heard this, would have immediately gone to one place. Where's there something about a snake in the Jewish scriptures? Genesis 3.15, right? And what did we see in that? In Genesis 3, God in punishing Satan says, I will put enmity between your seed, your offspring, and the seed of the woman. Right? It's that first gospel message. There, that, that, that conflict between the seed of Satan and the seed of the woman, which is Christ. So when anybody said to them, you're a seed or a brood of a viper, it was simply saying, you're children of the devil. Yeah. You sons of the devil. Unless you think that's out of place, how dare someone say that to someone? That's exactly what Jesus says. John chapter 8, verse 43 and 44, Jesus speaking to another crowd says this. Why do you not understand what I say? It's because you cannot bear to hear my word. You are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. Outside of Christ, you are by nature children of wrath, Ephesians 2 says. Why? Because you're of your father of this world, the devil. You go after his things. Lie, kill, steal, destroy. You, you seek to, to, to do things through deception. You seek to take care of yourself through pride and arrogance to make sure number one is taken care of. You look to yourself for reliance, for hope. You are of your father, the devil, outside of Jesus. Why do you think the language of salvation in the new covenant is adoption? It's because you, were not, you weren't born a child of God. Through the Holy Spirit, you were made one. Brought into the family. Plucked from your father, the devil, who had a grip on you through your sin. And plucked and placed into the family of God. By the sovereign free grace of Christ. Now, John's first words to his audience was an indictment to his, his, his listeners' nature. You're people in Satan's grip. You are his children with his nature. And such, and as such, you face the judgment of God. You're going to be judged because of your nature. Second, John warns that that wrath is on the way. You're going to see that when Pastor Freddie preaches next week. This Messiah is going to come to bring the Holy Spirit and fire. There's two kinds of fire you can be saved with. The fire of the Holy Spirit or destroyed by the fire of judgment. It's only two fires. There's wheat and there's chaff. 
There are sons of God and sons of vipers. One will be gathered into the barn of heaven, the other cast into the fires of hell. So John warns that there is a coming wrath which makes the plight of vipers extremely precarious. You don't want to be a viper when the Messiah comes. Because just like the staff of Moses which swallowed up those two vipers of the Pharaoh's sorcerers, he will swallow up all those who stay vipers themselves. The bronze serpent will absolutely lay waste to Satan's serpents. But John mentions something very important. You can escape from the wrath. There is a way of escape. You can flee from it. And these vipers are fleeing the right direction. They have come out to him in this strange place to receive forgiveness of sin. And finally, John hints by his question, who warned you to flee from the repentance or free from the wrath to come? In that question, John is literally shocked. This isn't John just being like, I'm just going to continue to add as much ad hominem as I can. I'm just going to continue to be as polemical and say as nasty things as I can to you. When he says, who, flee, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? That's a sincere question. What in your heart, you bride of vipers, has worked in such a way that you've come out here to me, a strange man in a strange place, to hear the message of repentance? Now, we don't get an answer. But I think had John would have answered, he would have said, God did it. God has worked repentance in your heart to come out to hear this message of salvation. That's the only way a bride of vipers is going to be turned into a child of God. God's got to do it. God's got to get you from one to the next. He's got to do it. It's all grace. It's all mercy. It's all Him. Jesus said Himself, No one can come to Me unless the Father draws Him. When Peter revealed that Jesus was the Son of God, he said, Flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but My Father who is in heaven. The only way you will see the need to be saved is for God to work it in your heart. I pray that he will do so this morning if he has not yet done so. Now, in verse 8, John tries to explain to those who have truly repented that you are no longer going to be able to act like sinful serpents. You need to act like fruitful trees. If you've truly repented, your life will bear fruits of that repentance. There will be a real transformation of your life. We'll get a picture of that in verses 10 through 14. But all of a sudden he says something fascinating. With all this talk about repentance and fruit, John knows. He probably can hear the whispers in the crowd. Who does this man think he is? Who does this man think he is talking to sons of Abraham this way? We're children of Abraham. We're we're of the circumcision. How dare this unruly man Speak to us this way. Talking about repentance and fruit and wrath. I can hear John hearing the whispers. And what does he say? Do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. Don't let that old serpent sow seeds in your mind saying, Hey, what, wait, wait, what am I here doing at this river getting baptized like Gentiles? We're not under wrath. We, we belong to Abraham. And all those covenant promises made in Genesis 12, 15, and 17. Those are to his offspring. 
And then we're the offspring. So how dare He say we need to repent? Be baptized like common Gentiles. How can a son of Abraham ever worry about being swept away like chaff by the wrath of God? John is warning the Jews that such a line of reasoning is a great mistake. It's this warning in John and in Luke eight or Luke three eight that confirms to us Luke's understanding behind John's baptism. Remember, Jewishness is no guarantee for salvation. Non-Jewishness is no hindrance to it. A person should never think that any human or fleshly distinctive about themselves can obligate God to bless them. God is obligated to bless no one. He gives mercy to whom He wills and hardens whom He wills. There is no... God. Fair is God giving you judgment. Anything beyond judgment from God is mercy and grace. So He's not obligated to bless anyone. If He does, it's mercy. And oh, what mercy He has shown. John gives the reason why Jews shouldn't rely on their Jewishness. For I tell you, God is able to raise up from these stones... Sons of Abraham. Literally inanimate objects. He could make sons if he wanted to. Don't you dare try to put God in a box. Don't you dare try to put him in debt to you. Man, we do that a lot. I'm a pretty good person. I think God's going to have to bless me in the end. Don't you ever think you put God in debt. You don't. This is a tremendously revealing statement because it reveals some things. It reveals that John and the Jews actually do agree on something. John agrees with them that the sons of Abraham are those who will inherit the covenant promises. He agrees. But notice what he disagrees with them is the nature of those sons. He could raise up stones to receive those promises. So then that must mean that it has nothing to do with a fleshly connection to Abraham that makes one his true offspring. You see, both of them, John and the Jews know, God's word cannot cannot fail. His promises must come to pass. And this was His promise. Genesis 22, 18. In your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. But John does something interesting here. He shows them that that offspring of Abraham who would be blessed isn't one connected by flesh, but by repentant faith in the promise to come. How is God able to keep His promises to Abraham while also destroying anyone who is of His physical descent? That refuses to follow in the steps of Abraham. And what were the steps of Abraham? By believing in the promise to come and it being counted as righteous. Romans 4. In other words, to be in the family of Abraham was not to be connected to Abraham in flesh, but to be connected to Abraham in faith. And this is clear from what Paul teaches in Galatians 3.16. When that promise of God came to Abraham about your offspring will be blessed, what people don't realize is the Hebrew root there is singular. 
That word offspring is not plural. It's singular. There's only one offspring of Abraham that is being promised to receive the eternal blessings. Galatians 3, Paul makes this clear. Verse 16, Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one and to your offspring, who is Christ. So who is the offspring of Abraham who will receive the eternal blessings promised to him? The offspring, the Christ, Jesus. So as long as Jesus is raised up, comes, fulfills the life, lives in perfect salvation, walks in victory and glory, ushering in the eternal blessings of God, then the promise is true. And that's precisely what happened. That's precisely what happened. Everyone else has no connection to Abraham divorced from his faith. In other words, the promise of the covenant of grace given to Abraham, it was a promise of the covenant of grace, not the substance of it. The promise of the covenant of grace was that it would be established with a single offspring of his, the the Christ, Jesus. And everyone who repented and believed upon him would be brought into the new covenant, made children of Abraham through their relation to his one offspring, Jesus. And this is what he goes on to say in Galatians 3, verse 27 through 29. For as many of you were baptized into Christ, have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. So, so... How do you become a child of Abraham? Not by flesh, not by your parents' faith, but specifically in your faith in the offspring of Abraham, namely Jesus. That's how you get into the new covenant. This new covenant, which is not like the old ones, Jeremiah 31 says, given to your fathers. You don't get brought in this through physical lineage. You get through, through this by spiritual transformation, which is wrought by God alone. And this is why we baptize those who truly repent. And this is why we believe that covenantal inclusion is only for those who can repent and believe for themselves. This is why we do not practice pedo baptism. Because what John is revealing here and what the new covenant shows is that one's lineage or their parental faith, parents' faith, is of no importance to their covenant inclusion. The only thing that brings one into the covenant, the new covenant of Jesus Christ, the eternal salvation of God, is the personal repentant faith themselves. That's why we baptize believers. Because there is only one way to guarantee new covenant conclusion, and that is personal repentance and faith. You cannot ride or be included on the coattails of anyone else. What John and Paul were saying to their Jewish kinsmen was that they needed to understand that neither Abraham's personal faith nor his personal flesh was of any use to them for eternal salvation. If they did not believe in the promised one just as Abraham did, then they proved themselves to be merely Ishmael's, children of Abraham's flesh, rather than Isaac, children of Abraham's promise. 
You see, Ishmael was born of just natural means. Isaac was born of a miracle. Isaac was born to the aid of God. And that's what it is to be born a child of Abraham. To be born again to the miracle wrought by God alone. Otherwise, you're just an Ishmael, a child of the flesh. And by grace, God did raise up children for Abraham from stones. Listen to what Peter says in 1 Peter 2.5. You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Who are the living stones? We are. God, by grace, did raise up stones to repent and become children of Abraham by faith in Christ. And everyone who does not repent and bear fruits of repentance, the warning is clear. Verse 9, the axe is laid to the root and every tree which does not produce fruit will be cut down and thrown in the fire. That's as serious as it gets. That is the bad news that precedes the good news. The bad news is, apart from Jesus, you are a tree that will be cut down and cast into the fire. But there is a way to escape the wrath. Repent and believe in the one to come. Believe in Jesus. And how can you know where you are as a tree? Well, my friend, apple trees don't, give, don't bear oranges. So what fruit are you bearing? That is the greatest reflection of you, whether or not you're truly repentant. And whether or not God has really changed your heart. And he makes that clear in verses 10 through 14. I'm not going to read it. I just want to quickly look through it there. Notice here the three groups that he gives insight to. He addresses the crowds. Tax collectors and soldiers. Now, I'm sure there are lots of people out there that ask John what they should do for repentance. But Luke highlights these three individuals. Why? These three groups. Why? They all hate each other. The crowds hate the tax collectors. Tax collectors hate the soldiers. Soldiers hate the crowds. They all hate each other. And yet all of them are coming for repentance. And notice, John never says to one of them, you can't come here. You don't have any place here. He welcomes them all into repentance and baptism and gives them a clear insight of what repentance looks like in their life. Look at some of the things that he says here, right? Verses 11 through 14. I'll quickly look at some of them. First, the tax collectors collect no more than you're authorized to do. The soldiers do not extort money from anyone by threats or false accusation and be content with your wages. When you think of all the hundreds of exhortations John could, or John could have given and Luke could have recorded, why these three? Notice the connection in all of them in verses 11 through 14. If someone has a tunic or has no tunic and you have two, give them. Give them both. If you have food, give it. Notice he doesn't say if you have extra food, give it. If you have food, give it to someone in need. Notice what he says to the tax collector. Don't extort. Don't take more money than you ought to take. Do your job faithfully with integrity. Notice he doesn't say you don't need to be a tax collector anymore. He just says do it in a way that's righteous and true and honoring God. Notice he doesn't tell the soldier, stop being a soldier. 
Stop fighting. Stop doing the thing. Stop taking the, the, the orders of your commander. He just simply says, don't use your power for corruption. Use it for good. I love all of these. Because John shows us that the fruits of repentance are not marked by necessarily transforming our entire lifestyle to not being like our job anymore. He says that God transforms you right where you are. You don't got to become a preacher to be repentant. But if you're a school teacher, will you teach in a way that honors God and gives Him glory in everything that you do? If you're in law enforcement, will you do things that absolutely uses your authority for the basis of the good of the people you've been called to serve? If you're a soldier, will you be one of integrity and honor? Doing the right things with the power given to you. Will you fight not because you hate what stands before you, but because you love what stands behind? If you're a crowd, take care of people the right way. Stop being all about numero uno. Notice, true repentance is not pictured in how they all of a sudden change their worship to God. He didn't say, well, you should, you should be going to church services this many times. You should be reading your Bible this much. You should be praying this many times. True repentance John, that John declares is something that radically transforms our heart towards others. Towards other people. Meaning that when you are transformed by God, it's radically going to transform the way you treat others. Repentance is revealed often most clearly in the way you treat those around you. In other words, if you have a hard time providing for others in need or taking care of others, John makes clear that you don't own your stuff. Your stuff owns you. You won't hold back when others are in need. You won't take advantage of others when you are fully satisfied of all that you have in Christ. John makes clear that repentance produces fruit. True repentance is fruit bearing. So what does your fruit say about you? Closing three points here. Just real brief overview of what true repentance is based upon John's ministry and message. First, true repentance is the necessary prerequisite for any human being to be forgiven of sins and included in the eternal new covenant kingdom of Christ. You must repent. You cannot enter the kingdom of heaven if you do not repent. That is John's message and it is Jesus' message. Repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. You must repent. Secondly, true repentance is a turning away from my sin and away from my confidence and I, that I place in my flesh and turning to the absolutely free mercy of God in Christ as the sole basis of my salvation. Are you putting your hope for eternity in anything else besides Jesus this morning? Are you putting it in your works, your efforts, who you are, your parents' faith? If you are this morning, there is no confidence in salvation for you. The only way to be confident that you are saved forever is to repent and believe in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins. And you may ask, I'm not sure if I have. The question is, is what fruit are you bearing? Because three, true repentance bears the fruit of a transformed life towards both God and others. 
One of the greatest ways to know that God has done a work in your heart is seen in the way you think about others. Do you seek to use the blessings you've been given to bless others? Do you seek to take care of those in need? Do you get a heart of mercy and sympathy to those who are hurting? Do you desire for others to see Jesus? These are the fruits that bear in repentance. God transforms us right where we are. Will you repent and believe today? That is the only guarantee of salvation. But here's the good news about repentance. God providing repentance makes, very, makes clear one important thing. His grace is greater than our sin. And if you turn to Him, it doesn't matter what you've done. He will save you and change you right where you are. Let's pray. Father God, we thank You so much for Your Word. We thank You so much for the truths therein. Lord, I pray that You will be with all today. That they would come to know what true repentance is. That Lord, if they have yet to know Jesus, that they have yet to come to Him by faith, that they will surrender all to Him. That they will turn away from their sin and all of the confidence that they find in their flesh and turn to Christ alone for salvation. I pray, God, that You would bless this church with people whose lives are bearing of great fruit. Fruit that brings glory to You in all things. And Lord, I pray as anyone examines their heart this morning as we close out and they come to the realization that they have not known You, God, that they would come and speak to any of us, that they might know with full assurance that they have salvation in You. And Lord, I pray if anyone this morning recognizes that the fruits of their life has not been reflecting a changed tree, one that is grafted in and planted into Christ, then I pray right now, God, they would resolve right where they are to press into You that Your fruit might come through them. That they might repent where they have fallen short, repented where they have lived contrary to their calling of their life. And that they may walk in a life that bears fruits of repentance. That all might see and savor the Christ who gives us that fruit to bear. Would help us now see that His grace is greater than our sin. And that we turn to Him alone for salvation. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.